for you. You know, I can't preach a lick, but I've got great friends, and I know you enjoyed Skip Ryan. I sure enjoyed hearing about what was going on while I was away. He did a great job on Sunday mornings and many other venues, but especially here. I heard good things about what he had to say, and it was a blessing to you all. Thanks for uh, accepting me back. You know, I, I like to bring in uh, good speakers when we have an opportunity. I just thought that maybe with Ronnie Stevens this summer and Skip Ryan, I overdid it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure you all be, you'd want to have me back, but it's, it really is uh, great to be back. And welcome to you all. There may be some uh, of you who have just kind of restarted Amen or you hadn't been to Amen before. And if that's true with you, we especially welcome you. And let me just say that uh, Amen is meant to be just a really simple Bible study. It really is. It's just what we call simple exposition. We just go right through a text and see what it means and try to figure out what it means for us today. And it's uh, Amen Bible study is especially fun because it's made up of a bunch of different people, uh, knuckleheads from all different kinds of denominations and no denominations, uh, people who are Christians and people who aren't Christians, and you all gather around tables and have different opinions, and that's part of what makes Amen. So we really appreciate the diversity, which means... I'm, a, I'm bound to offend every one of you at some point this year because <laughs> so, uh, I can't say anything that some of you don't disagree with. So uh, and that's fine. That's part of amen. So let that be part of the deal. And if, if I tick you off royally or if I insult your denomination or something like that, uh, just send me an email. Let me have it and we'll correspond and, and I'll learn a few things. You might learn something and, and at least we know we love each other. So that's the way amen works. And please do enjoy each other and enjoy the diversity that we have uh, in the room, the different backgrounds and so on. I really appreciate that. Uh, also, you know, a few years ago, we really started to stress the small groups because, you know, it's one thing to, to have somebody up front uh, talking about the Bible. It's really another thing for you to talk about it. And it, it's helpful for you to talk about it. So we encourage you to get into small groups where you feel comfortable talking about it and, and what what the text means to you, how you apply it, questions and concerns you have, maybe something you don't agree with or have trouble with that's in the Bible, who knows. But you're likely to say it in a small group. You're not likely to raise your hand and speak up in this group. Please don't. Uh, so if, if you haven't already signed up for a small group, I think there's an opportunity to do so back there at the back at the end. And if you're particular about who you get matched up with, just say so, and they'll call and get your permission before they put you in a group, if, if, that, if you're sensitive about that. So um, please think about that. And small groups can meet any time during the week. I notice a bunch of you meet right after Amen down the hall in rooms. A lot of you can't do that because of uh, commitments you have after 730. Uh, but you can figure out whatever time of the week you want to meet, and it really does help uh, take what we've learned together in this room and massage it into your life and uh, your world in a very very uh, personal way. So think about that if you haven't already. And lastly, I would say uh, bring friends. We still have some empty seats. There's room. So bring friends. And let me describe the kind of friend that would be really cool to bring. And that is somebody who doesn't have maybe a good place they like to go to study the Bible. Uh, or maybe someone's in a church and they really are not studying the Bible very much. Uh, or maybe someone's not in a church at all and they just don't have an opportunity to study the Bible. Why don't you just lean on them a little bit uh, and get them to come with you. David Williams, before he died, he told me, <clears throat> some of you know him or maybe in his law practice, uh, he said, I love asking my friends and my law firm to come to Amen 
because it's at 6.30 in the morning and they can't tell me, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's, that's the great thing about 6.30. Nobody's busy. So just ask them to come and uh, it's a great opportunity to reach out, I think, and bless people's lives. Folks, we have a fabulous assignment ahead of us this year. Uh, we do have some other really good guest speakers coming in. But our main diet for this year is this fabulous book of Galatians. And if you'll take your Bibles and open up there, we're going to look at these first five verses. And as you're turning, let me just say that uh, this book is so wonderful. It has blessed so many lives for so many years, beginning with many of the folks to whom it was written in the very first place. It was written in the midst of great controversy. Paul had evangelized these people. It was his first missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 13 and 14. He went to Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe, and he evangelized there with some resistance, some significant resistance from uh, the Jewish crowd. And you remember that he was stoned and left for dead on that uh, missionary journey because of the message he was bearing. So there was great resistance to it, but some people believed. And they formed churches in that area, in Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And that's, what, that's the group to whom we think he's writing in Galatians. There is some controversy about whether it was northern Galatia, southern Galatia. I think it was southern Galatia, and that's uh, those churches I just described. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the text when we get to it, where Paul is saying some things that cause people to wonder exactly the timing of this letter. But it appears as though he's writing to those churches that he and Barnabas evangelized some years prior. And what had happened was, and this happens all the time, and happens in your church. If, you, if your church has existed for very long, it's gone through periods when it's kind of wandered off, and then it wanders back, hopefully. Sometimes they don't wander back. Sometimes they just die. But Paul had evangelized these people and established them in the gospel, and then when he left, the resistance in the community from the Judaizers, uh, the Jewish Christians who were confused about whether they should keep their Jewish customs or not. They began to pressure everybody in the church, and it began to distort the gospel. So now the gospel was Christ, plus you have to keep the Jewish traditions. And this, as we're going to see, this uh, not only obscures the gospel, it perverts it and makes it another gospel. So these people now were not enjoying the benefits of the gospel. Paul had almost paid his life to give to them. And he is one ticked-off apostle. This guy is upset. This is about the only letter, I think, where you get absolutely no commendation at all from him to the people to whom he's writing. Now, if you open up and look at Philippians, you know, it's just almost saccharine, all the love and encouragement and compliments he gives them. Even in Corinthians, which was one wild and hairy church, these people were doing everything. I mean, you had a guy sleeping with his stepmother and you had people to die in the resurrection, all kinds of stuff going on. But Paul still commends them and says, I pray with thanksgiving for you, da-da-da-da-da. You don't get a bit of that in Galatians. And the reason is we've got serious doctrinal business going on here where the gospel is being undermined. Now, so it was dangerous times there, just like it's dangerous times in a lot of churches in our day who are obscuring the gospel. This happens all the time. Don't think for a minute that you can turn your eyes away and everything's fine. You've got stable leadership. You don't have to know the gospel. You don't have to teach it or defend it. Forget it. You always have to. We live in a broken world, and it always affects the church. So yeah, this was a desperate time in Paul's day. However, we can rejoice because as a result of Paul's necessary ministry to that church, 
we get a very clear exposition of what the gospel is. <laughs> Let there be no question about it. Paul is very careful to delineate what, what the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is all about. So Galatians through the centuries has been known as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. It's been known as the Christian Declaration of Independence because in this Galatians, we are delivered from the shackles of our own sin and guilt and misery. We're delivered from the burden of trying to earn our acceptance before God. And this can be a very subtle and nuanced uh, thing. And we, I think we're going to see that God's going to open up new vistas of understanding for all of us, beginning with the teacher about what the meaning of the gospel is and how you actually apply it in everyday life. There's so many things that you and I do that are a contradiction of the gospel every day. And I think we're going to see more and more how once we, once we really grasp this and understand it, that new shafts of light are going to be shed upon every realm of our lives as men. So I'm very, very excited about it. When Martin Luther, uh, some centuries ago, uh, studied this text, and it got hold of him. He really made it one of his key biblical books for his life. And he put it this way. He said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. <laughs> I think he's saying, I, I wrote this one. I could have written it. The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. His wife's name was Katie or Catherine. And he says, Galatians is my Catherine. So I hope Galatians becomes your Catherine. I hope that you, you're really wed to it uh, by the end of our study together and that its message has truly transformed your life. Now, all we can do is just go one verse at a time, can't we? We can't take it all in. It's too big. It's too vast. But over the scope of this year, we're going to be able to take it in bite sizes and hopefully not lose the whole context in our minds in fact, we need to keep the whole context in our minds as we study any one verse. But let's take a look at Galatians 1, 1 through 5, which is the salutation, just the opening of the letter. But uh, before we read it, let me say, uh, all letters in the first century Greco-Roman world had salutations. This is nothing new. This is common uh, Greek epistolary form, what you're going to see here. You know, you give your name, and you say to whom you're writing, and you say, Greetings. And that's how you start a letter off. Sandy, to the Amen Bible study, good morning. That's a typical Greek epistolary form. Now, so Paul's using classic forms. But in the midst of this classic form, he injects loads of very important information about who he is and about what he is communicating to these people. So let's take a look at it. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Hey, he stole our word. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Let's look at the first verse and the first little part of the second verse, and we're going to see this. Galatians was written by Paul. Duh. 
There are some old liberal 19th century scholars who tried to suggest that Galatians was not written by Paul, and they went through all these fancy reasons why. Now it's just on the dustbin of history. I mean, even the liberal scholars have to admit this one was written by Paul. It has Paul all through it, all over it. Uh, you get Paul's passion. You get Paul's intelligence. You get Paul's message. Everything about it. There is no reason to question the authenticity of this letter. So Paul is saying he's identifying who wrote it. I wrote it, Paul says. But now look how this self-descriptor is chock full of important information. He says, Paul, an apostle. So Paul was an apostle. Now, what does the word apostle mean? It's a simple Greek word, uh, which means one who is sent. Apostello, I send. So we get the word apostle, a person who was sent. Actually, there were Jewish apostles. Paul, in fact, was. When he was Saul, he was a Jewish apostle. He was sent by the Sanhedrin on a mission to Damascus to go arrest those Christians. So he was a legate or an apostle or one who was sent, kind of a missionary. And in the scriptures, you'll find that it's not just the twelve who are called apostles, but Barnabas is called an apostle, Silas is called an apostle in one place, Timothy in one place is numbered among the apostles. In fact, in Romans 16, a guy named Junia, it could be a woman, uh, is called an apostle. So we're not quite sure who that person is in Romans 16, but we know they're not one of the twelve. So the word apostle has a generic sense. However, that is not the way the apostle Paul means to use it here. There's a specific sense. You'll see it in Mark chapter 3 when Christ calls the disciples and he designates them apostles. So this is those who were of the 12. Now, of course, Paul makes 13, doesn't he? We'll get to that. But it's those who are designated in a particular way. And how are they designated? Well, first of all, Paul shows you that these are sent by God, not by men. Notice what he says in the text. Sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Paul is saying, we are not representatives of a group, a nation, a religious body, even the Sanhedrin, the Session, anything like that. We are not sent by men. We are sent from God. So in this particular sense of apostle, of being one of the twelve sent, these men are personally commissioned, personally called by the Lord Jesus Christ to go out in His name. They have a personal commission, unlike Barnabas, unlike Silas, unlike Timothy and Junia. And furthermore, because of that, there can be no possible succession of these apostles. Now, for those of you who are Episcopalians, I've already, see, I've already made you angry. <laughs> Roman Catholics, I'm already making you angry today. I'm, I'm asserting that you can't have a next generation of apostles because these men were called personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. So even if we, we do it in the, the highest, most uh, uh, formal, liturgically correct way, and, you know, for example, we go, all go in the Sistine Chapel and we get the cardinals in there, and it's really mysterious and secret, and you don't know until the white smoke turns to black smoke, or it's the other way around, I guess, I don't know, I remember. It's a very secret way, and it has every appearance of being mysterious and ordained by God, and so on. And I don't question for a minute that God works through the appointment of even elders and deacons in your churches. 
But it, it was not by men. I mean, no matter how mystical and mysterious and powerful you make it, you still have a bunch of guys with red hats on in the Sistine Chapel choosing the Pope. It's done by men. And Paul said, there weren't, anybody, there weren't any people with red hats in any room who chose me. There was no, Peter, Paul, I mean, Peter, John, James, none of those people chose me. You could go to the highest councils of the church. They didn't choose me. I'm not here because of them. I had a personal commission from the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And this is the reason that in your Bible, Acts chapter 9 is very, very important. Paul is on the road to Damascus and a shaft of light comes down upon him and he hears a voice. And whose voice is that? That voice is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul doesn't have to take a back seat to the 12, or let's say the 11 minus Judas. 12 minus Judas makes 11. Matthias replaced Judas later, remember, in Acts chapter 1. But you had the 11 in the Gospels who were personally called by Jesus Christ when he was on the earth before his resurrection. He called them. They had a personal commission. So Thomas can go to India and preach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, personally commissioned by him. Peter can, can minister in Jerusalem, even go to Rome, personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Andrew can, can go to the lowlands, personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. All over the world, these men. Paul doesn't take a back seat. He says, now I was one untimely born. He said, I was the Johnny come lately. I was the last one. But he makes a big deal of this. As a matter of fact, not just Acts 9, but turning your Bibles back a few pages to Acts 26, and here Paul is before the king. He's before Agrippa. And he's defending himself. He's explaining himself and see how he does it. He says that he, he persecuted uh, the saints and put many saints in prison, verse 10. And they were put to death and I cast my vote against them. He's telling what an awful persecutor he was. He said, I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, this last of verse 11, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. He's talking to King Agrippa. He says, now on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So he's an apostle of the chief priests. Chief priests have sent him. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Imagine that. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wow. When you get persecuted, you just remember. Jesus is saying to this world, let me tell you who I am. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When you're persecuted, Jesus Christ himself takes it personally. He's persecuted. It's a powerful statement. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. Now look at this, gentlemen. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. Now notice something. 
He says, these people are going to be persecuting you now. You've been persecuting them? Well, guess what? You're just, all you're doing is switching sides. You're going to get persecuted. And then he says, I'm going to rescue from them, you from them. But then look at this. He says, and I'm going to send you to them. He doesn't say, I'm going to provide the way of escape for you so you don't have to talk to those jerks anymore. No, they're going to persecute you. I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to send you to them. So we go right into the face of the very people who hate us and who persecute us. He said, I'm sending you to them, look at verse 18, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So on. So you see, he makes much of this. This is, this is his commission. This is his reason for ministry. He was personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. The man has no choice. <laughs> I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Are you kidding me? Jesus talked to me. You think I'm going to disobey him? <laughs> I'll face death, imprisonment, beatings. I'm not disobeying him. I heard him. I saw the light and I heard his voice. So Paul is making this very important point that your Bible has come to you through people who were personally commissioned to speak on behalf of the living God. And they were personally called out by God to do so. This was not a committee of the church, the Christian education team of the Sanhedrin who said, oh, you know, we need, we need a book on the gospel. Or somebody said, oh, let's get together here. Let's see. Uh, John, why don't you write a gospel? You're a good writer. No, these people were personally called. They're speaking on behalf of God. So that, as Augustine said centuries ago, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. And this is consistent with what Paul himself says about the Scriptures, that they are God-breathed. It's God-breathing out. They're, you know, the, the way we translate it is the scriptures are inspired. Well, the better way to say it is they're expired. They're, they're, it's not breathing in, it's breathing out. It's God, or as J.I. Packer says, it's God preaching. So Paul is saying, look, because, look, in the controversy, they were not only distorting the gospel, but the next step was to question Paul's credentials. And you'll see in this text, Paul's credentials are severely challenged by this group. And they're basically saying, these Galatian churches who saw him and heard from him, they're saying, well, Paul, you know, he got confused. He, a few people in the church sent him over here, but he really wasn't the one that was supposed to come to us. He really didn't have God's message. Paul says, scratch that. From the very beginning, he's saying, I'm Paul an apostle. And I was sent, I'm an apostle, not from men nor by any man. Peter didn't send me. John didn't send me. James didn't send me. All of them together didn't send me. But by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an important thing to know about your Bible because I tell you what, here's what I find out with the problems I face. If I can just figure out where the authority lies in my life, that solves about 99% of my problems. Where is the truth and who is authoritative? What are my orders? Who's giving them to me? Where are they coming from? And what are those orders? If you just get the authority question settled in your life, 
so much of our life just straightens itself right out. And the problem in our day is people are confused. They're confused about the Bible. They want to know, why can't the Gospel of Thomas be in here? Why can't the Gospel of Judas? Or, you know, There are hundreds of Gospels out there. And they've got all kinds of reasons why people, for wrong reasons, excluded them from the Bible, and you should have them in your Bible. It's a baloney. Those things weren't written by apostles, nor the people who were close to apostles, like Luke was to, to Paul or Mark to Peter. So I, the books we have in our Bible are the ones who are written by the apostles and their close associates of the apostles. And that's what qualifies them to be in the Bible. And there was no question in the first centuries about those other books. They were crazy books. They were, you know, they were Gnostic books later on. The Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic gospel. And the reason that Elaine Padgels in Princeton says that the Gospel of Thomas should be in the New Testament is because she's a Gnostic for heaven's sakes. Of course she's arguing for, the, for Gnosticism. But the early church, had no, there was no, they had debates, but there was no question about this. If you would have said to them, why don't you include the Gospel of Thomas in the canon? It'd be like someone today saying, why don't you include the Da Vinci Code in the New Testament? You say, well, that's silly. It's completely ridiculous. Well, of course it's ridiculous. It's a silly book. The Gospel of Thomas is a silly book. If you've read it, you know, you'll know what I'm talking about. It doesn't fit. It's not of the same genre. It doesn't carry the same message. It obviously is not part of the canon. Paul says, I was commissioned personally by Jesus Christ. And your whole Bible is made up of messages commissioned personally by the living God. Now, that's what makes an apostle. He's sent by God, not by men. Now, secondly, uh, this is not in the text. I'm just going to give you a couple of other criteria for apostles so that you understand the uniqueness of this office. They were eyewitnesses. Paul says uh, about it uh, that there were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ and that he too was one of them. And in Acts 1.22, when they're replacing Judas with Matthias, it had to be an eyewitness. So the apostles are, you know, this distinctive, unique office was made up of people who were eyewitnesses, personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, they were workers of signs, wonders, and miracles. If you look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, just a page or two before Galatians, in verse 12, you'll see that Paul says, these things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. So Paul says, these are the marks of an apostle, and I did them among you, he says to the Corinthians. So you should know that I am truly a credentialed apostle. So, this is a big deal. Galatians was written by Paul, who is an apostle, who is a unique, distinctive apostle, commissioned by Christ and by our Father, who raised Christ from the dead. So, when you have doubts about whether the Bible in front of you is true or whether its message is helpful, you can lean, go back on this. Just think about it. Who wrote it? Why do we have it? Who commissioned it? For whom is he speaking? And there you have it. Also, we notice in verse 2, he says, And all the brothers with me, Paul was also a brother. Uh, and Paul would be the first one to say, in fact, he said it, that I'm just one of you guys. If Paul were here in the flesh this morning, he would, I mean, we would all want to know about his travel log and his stories, and we'd certainly want to learn from him. But he would emphasize the fact that he's one of us that he's just simply a brother that God in his grace chose out to be this apostle. In fact, Paul put it this way. 
He said, not only am I the least of the apostles because I came last and because I persecuted the church. I'm the least of the apostles. But eventually he says, I'm the worst of sinners because I persecuted the church. How many of you have killed people because they were Christians? You know, I don't think there's anybody in here who's done that. You may have had somebody try to kill you because you're a Christian, but I don't think anybody here has killed someone because someone else is a Christian. That's what Paul did for a living. And he said, I don't think any of you could be any worse than I am. So he speaks of himself as a trophy to the grace of God, not a trophy to his own personal accomplishments. He said those things are meaningless. So Paul's identifying with us as brother, and it's among the brotherhood that God put his hand upon this man and lifted him up and gave him his word and empowered him to speak authoritatively to the rest of us. It's not because Paul was better than we were. Now, I have to say, Paul was better than I am. <laughs> I mean, the man had a colossal intelligence, and he, he had a zeal that was unreal and a devotion to the Lord eventually that, that uh, we all admire so we can learn from him as an example. But that's not what Paul would be saying to us. And he constantly says this. I'm one of, a, I'm one of you guys. I'm a brother. And I want you to receive me that way. So as you receive this message, uh, you receive it from on high. But you also receive it from someone just alongside you who struggles just like you struggle, who has temptations just like you have them, and who needs the Word of God just like you need it. He's a brother. Now... Secondly, Galatians was not only written by Paul, but it was written to Christians in Galatia. It was written to real people in real circumstances with real needs, real temptations, and people who languished because they didn't understand the gospel clearly. And I have to say, every single one of us men is languishing in some way because we've either not understood nor adequately applied some aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think you'll see that through our year study together. You're going to identify this year several ways in which you need the light of the gospel to come in and do new work and renovate your old house of the house of your heart. And there's going to be some renovation going on as we look at the gospel in new ways. And Paul is simply writing to Christians. These are believers uh, who were getting it wrong. He says, to the churches in Galatia. So he's writing to real people with real needs. We've already seen what their needs were because they were confusing the very vitals of the gospel. And Paul labored among these churches. He loved them. And he was speaking strongly to them because he was concerned for them. Now, thirdly, we're going to spend the rest of our time on this third idea, which is that Galatians was written about the gospel. That's the main message. It is about the gospel. And the gospel is vast in its scope and vast in its depth of meaning. And it is worthy of our study for an entire year to look at what Paul is saying about the gospel. The gospel in terms of its meaning in our being justified before God and being admitted into heaven. The gospel in terms of its fruitfulness in our lives. You know, he says later on, uh, in Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So in other words, there's a fruitfulness, there's a, there's a fruit-bearing that comes from the gospel that is immense. And we need to look at what, what this life is supposed to be like that's rooted in this gospel. So we'll understand the gospel and then we'll see how it gets applied to life in some vast ways that affect our marriages, our relationships, our business, and community life. Now, first of all, let's look at... Uh, verse 2b, uh, when he, 
uh, he says uh, in 2b, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 3. He says in verse 3, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said to you earlier, the typical epistolary form was simply greetings. It's a word for greetings. But Paul extends it here, and he uses the words grace and peace, which we've seen in the Bible and many other places. Let's look at these for just a moment. These are intentionally used. And here's the reason. The first thing about the gospel is we want to know the motivation of the gospel, and here it is. The motivation of the gospel is the grace of God. You want to know why did God do this? Why did God give us the gospel? I don't know. Except I know this. That God is glorified when His sovereign and free, unconditional love is given and demonstrated among sinners like you and me. That's what I know. And all I know is that He loves sinners and that's the reason He's doing it. There's no reason in you. If I could explain why He particularly loved you, you'd be lost. I'll tell you why. If I could think of anything in you that would give Him reason to love you, you're going to blow it. (laughs) I mean, if I say, well, it's because you were nice to your wife last week. Well, you're not going to be nice to her next week. If it's because I say, well, you know, you really have a fairly good moral character. Well, just give yourself about three weeks. I mean, you know, everybody's going to screw up. As soon as I lodge any of God's reasons for the gospel in you, we're lost because we cannot sustain it. Therefore, the entire reason for this gospel is not in us at all. It is in Him. And He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And therefore, I know that He will continue to love me because the reasons for His actions toward me are fully in Him alone. And He doesn't change. I change. I'm fickle. I'm a failure. He's not. So the motivation for the gospel is coming completely out of God Himself and it is completely driven or motivated by love, by grace. And grace is love given to undeserving people. If you love me and I love you, great. As Jesus says, the pagans are good at that. They greet people who say hello to them. They're nice to people who are nice to them. It's a bilateral, interdependent, I guess you could call it love of a sort. But if I am dirty, rotten scoundrel, and I have, I have really not loved you at all, and you love me, that's called grace. Because I don't deserve it. You've been gracious. That's the way God's love is. It's completely gracious. And this entire redemptive story of God's love is completely gracious. And the gospel is motivated completely by His grace. And you see this in Luke 15, don't you? With the lost coin, and the lost sheep, and the lost son. And you see the waiting father for his worthless son to come back after he squandered all the estate. And he comes back to a banquet. My son, 
is back. That's grace. And that's the way the Father is dealing with you. And so if, if you're sitting there thinking, like most men do, you know, I hope, I, can, I hope one day I could be good enough to really call myself a Christian. <laughs> let me let you in on something. You ain't never going to get there. <laughs> you're never going to make it. Never. Because as you learn more about God, your definition of goodness is going up, not down. And as you learn more about yourself from a biblical perspective, your view of your own natural performance is not going up, it's going down. And so as you grow, you actually do that. <laughs> and the gap becomes greater, not, not less, greater. So you end up in more and more misery all the time. I mean, Christianity can really make you miserable unless you've got the answer to this. It's called grace, that God loves unworthy people like us. So it's never a matter of being worthy of Him. You're not going to make it. It's that He loves people who are unworthy. And you receive that message. The gospel is completely motivated by grace. The Judaizers were distorting the message, and we don't have time to look at the many texts. You'll find them as you read through Galatians. And, and I just suggest this week you just read through Galatians. You can take a chapter a day, or you can read the whole thing at one sitting very easily. But you just might mark in there all the places that show the distortions of the gospel by the Judaizers, the new Christians in these churches who are still committed to their Jewish customs as well as trying to be committed to Christ, and they tried to pull it together. They were called Judaizers. They're trying to stick with Judaism and also be Christians. And look at all the distortions here. They're vast, and they're all contrary to God's grace. That's the problem. Now, secondly, about the gospel in this introduction. The effect of the gospel is the peace of God. He says grace and peace to you. So you have God's grace, which is the motivation of the gospel. You have His love and then you're to experience the effects of that love in your life, which is known as shalom in Hebrew. Irene, for which we get the word irenic in English. Peace in Greek. So you're to experience the effects. Now, what are the effects of the great, gracious love of God? Let me just give you maybe a, a little fourfold framework in which you can think about shalom. First of all, we have peace with God. You can write these down if you want to under the effect of the gospel. We have peace with God. You say, why do I need peace with God? Because you're at war with Him. <laughs> That's why. You know, you're, you've been at war and you didn't even know it. You've been contrary to His standards you didn't even know it. You've been doing things that offend Him and you weren't even aware of it. Now you take a good look at who God is in the Bible and say, you know, I've got a problem on my hands here. I've been, I've been insulting the King of the universe. You need to have reconciliation between you and the Creator. That's exactly what the gospel does. It brings peace with God. Now, as a result of that, secondly, you get the peace of God. If you want a scripture reference for the peace with God, look at Romans 5, 1 and 2. Paul says, now we have peace with God because of the gospel. With the second point, the peace of God, that's an experience of God's peace. You're reconciled with Him, but sometimes your, your soul is still rattled. You're not sure what He thinks about you. Well, you can have that soul calm down and have the peace of God. And Paul speaks about it in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. 
So we can have the peace of God because we've got peace with God. So there's tranquility and a sense of well-being that's an effect of the gospel. You should be experiencing this to some degree. Now, all of us have different, different nervous systems that we were given at birth, and all of us have different histories that have helped shape that nervous system, and some of us are a little bit more jittery than others. I'm not talking about that. We all have our own starting places. But what, from whatever starting point you have, you should begin to experience that tranquility that comes from knowing that all things are okay between you and your Creator. Even though you've offended Him, He's taken those offenses away. We'll get to that in a moment. Thirdly, you have peace with one another. It's interesting in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul describes the blood of Christ as being that which brings peace among the brothers so that even Jew and Gentile can be reconciled. This is, this is the reason that the gospel is absolutely essential to a city like Memphis. How are you going to bridge the gap between black and white with the hateful things that have been done for hundreds of years? How are you ever going to address that? How are you ever going to see any progress? I'm telling you, there's only one way. Only one way. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ, which breaks down those divisions and enables people to listen to each other, to sympathize with each other, to confess to each other, to apologize to each other, to encourage and support each other, to divest themselves for one another's benefit. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ which brings people together. It's one of the effects of the gospel. And I have to ask you, are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing that in your life? That people that you can say, you know, apart from my conversion to Christ, I'd never be friends with that guy. I'd never even be interested in being friends with that guy. But now as a result of the cross of Jesus Christ, I love that guy. Can you say that? That you've really experienced that? That is a clear expression of the gospel. And that's the reason that when you have racial strife in a city where you have so many believers, it ought to grieve us because it is a denial of the gospel. It's the exact opposite. So the gospel is that people come together in Christ by His shed blood. And we'll see more of that a little later in Galatians. But certainly, we have peace with one another. And then lastly, I would just say peace with the world. I mean, eventually, shalom is going to descend upon the entire cosmos. And the wolf will lie down with the lamb, for heaven's sakes. I mean, those ancient enemies, people who used to feed on each other, animals that used to feed on each other will no longer do so, but they will lie down with each other. And so it will be with us. We'll beat our swords into plowshares. So there is a cosmic peace that we can begin to taste right now, but will come to us in fullness later. So that is the effect of the gospel. And Paul mentions it. Grace and peace to you. Those sound like cheap words to us. We've heard them so many times. He means something very profound by it. Grace to you Christians. You've got grace, and you're the only ones who do. Peace to you. You're the only ones who have shalom experience it, live it out, so on. Thirdly, the heart of the gospel is the substitutionary death of Christ. He says, Peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, who gave Himself for our sins. Gentlemen, you can't have a gospel without Christ. And you can't have Christ without a cross. And the meaning of the cross is that His blood was actually shed in great pain to accomplish something in your life, namely to remove your sins. It was a very costly sacrifice, but it was necessary for the removal of your sins. 
And it's amazing to me how many Christian churches will teach the love of God as though, love, as though God at one point just decided, well, you know, I'm just going just to wink and, and dismiss that sin. I'll dismiss those sins. And anybody wants to come, I'll just dismiss your sins at no cost to himself. There's no mention of Christ whatsoever. How can you have, how can you understand the love of God at all? Unless you understand that he is a righteous judge who demands payment for every sin. It must be paid for. You either pay for it or a reasonable substitute, which would mean another human being, stands in your place to pay for it. Well, Jesus Christ is a human being, and that's the reason His humanity is so important, because He is then a worthy substitute for you, because He is fully human, and He can pay the price. And the reason He can pay for Jim Boren's sin and mine at the same time is because He's more than just one human being. He's also deity. And his, the value of his sacrifice is infinite because of his deity. Therefore, he's fully man. That means he qualifies as a substitute. He is deity. He can substitute for all of us and for the entire world, for anyone who will receive him. And it's necessary for the forgiveness of sins. This is the core of the gospel, and it needs to continue to be proclaimed to yourself and to others for many, many reasons. The primary reason of which, of course, is that Jesus Christ receives glory for what he has done for us. And the church receives relief for our sins because so often the church thinks, men like you who go to church think, well, I screwed up last week, but if I really perform well this week, I'll make up for my sins. That is not the way Paul is saying we live our life. We let those sins from the last week go. We leave them at the cross. And the reason I can go and ask forgiveness for my brothers and really receive cleansing is because my sins before God were already paid for. The foundation of the forgiveness is already there. And when we forgive one another, all we're really doing is ministering in a human way from the foundational forgiveness that was purchased for us at Calvary. And we're drawing upon that great capital. That's the reason we can forgive each other. And that's the reason we accept forgiveness from each other. Because it's rooted in this this ocean of God's forgiveness purchased by the blood of Christ. Christ was our substitute. He stood in our place. He really did it. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a fancy story. It was something that happened really in history, in space, and time. He died on a cross to die for you. And those, those pains of agony were for you. You deserved them. He took them. And gentlemen, since he took them, you don't have to take them by right of justice, not just mercy. God is merciful in not requiring payment for your sin, but he's just in not requiring payment for your sin because payment has already been made. And a just judge does not require payment twice for the same transgression. That's the reason John says... If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's by right of His divine justice, which is perfect, that you would not have to pay for your sins when you trust in Jesus Christ. You had a substitute, a real substitute, who really paid for it. It doesn't need to be paid anymore. And I don't care what you do. I don't care how bad your sin is. I'm... I'm, I'm serious with this now. David murdered a man and committed adultery all in the same week. And, you know, we've got some people in this room who are going to identify with that. Now, let me just make a bold proclamation to you. 
If you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are as acceptable in heaven as He is. Now be done with all your woe is me crap. And some of you think you're going to earn your favor before God by being really, really, really sorry for your sins. I remember one time my son David, when he was leading devotions as a five-year-old, he said, Lord, forgive me for my sins because I'm, I'm sorry and I mean it. <laughs> and some of you think you're going to impress God because you really, you're really sorry. Well, I know. I'm sorry too because it was my sins that put him on the tree. But I'm not worried at all about what God thinks about me because my Savior purchased His love for me and it's done. It's decided. It's over. It's not going to change. Now, if I get really bad, God might kill me and bring me home early and that's fine. But He is not sending me to hell. That decision has been made by Him. And I know that because He gave me the grace to receive His grace. So this blood purchased something. And what did it purchase? Well, look at it. A D, the work of the gospel is to rescue sinners. We're, we get rescued by this blood. We were in trouble. Some of you are in trouble right now because you really haven't received Christ and his work on the cross for your sins. You haven't admitted that you even need him. You're in trouble. Look at the rescue operation here. It's profound to rescue us not just from a few nicks and bruises, not from a miserable life, but from the present evil age. You're lifted out of one age and you're put into the next age, which is the age to come. There are two ages, this present evil age and the age to come. And you already have been transferred from one kingdom, this present evil age, and you now belong to this age to come. And you're citizens from another place and another age living in the old age. It gets tough sometimes. I'm telling you what, it's downright exciting. You're, you're, you're from another planet. You've been transferred. You've been rescued. This age is falling apart. Global warming is nothing compared to what's going to happen to this planet one day. I'm talking about global warming. I'm telling you something here, boys. It's going to get real warm. You do not want to be around. If you're in Christ, you've already been delivered from it. You have to worry about it. You shouldn't mess up the environment. You ought to take really good care of it. You ought to do important study and not use carbons that are going to mess things up and all this. But you've been delivered from it. You're free. You're, you're serving to keep a clean environment largely for other people. You're not worried about it. You're going to another environment. And that's exactly what Jesus has purchased for you. You delight yourself in it. We've got to move on. We've only got three minutes left. What's happened to this hour? <laughs> e, the source of the gospel is the decree of God. It's according to the will of our God and Father. It's his pleasure to do this. I don't know why he's doing it. He could have destroyed us and the universe at the Garden of Eden when we rebelled against him. That seemed to be the logical conclusion of what he said to Adam. If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. It seemed that that would have been it. I don't know why he's doing this. Until you come to F, the purpose of the gospel is to glorify God, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen, Bible study. The purpose of the gospel is to glorify God. That's the purpose. That's what's going on. It's really about glorifying Him. Here's, let me, before we, we quit here, two minutes. I, I had this great sabbatical this past month. 
I went with my wife. We traveled out west and went, basically went to the national parks, went to about six of them. And it was a wonderful trip. But honestly, uh, I mean, the church here has been so kind to our pastors to give us a month sabbatical for every seven years. Well, I've been here 14 years, so I had two months sabbatical. And I took this month with Allison. I, I, before I left, I said, you know, I really don't feel like I need this. I'm rested. I love my work. You know, I don't, I'm not going crazy or burning out or anything. But I'm, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to have fun. And I was so selfish, I didn't even understand what the meaning of this sabbatical was until I got back. Uh, you know, I've been running for a couple of years, so I'm in really good shape. And it would have been fun for me to walk down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and come back up. I, I would have loved to have taken 10 or 12-mile hikes in Yosemite and climbed a few things in, Mount, in Glacier National Park and so on. But I didn't because I'm with my wife. And she has a lung disease. And she has, you know, partial use of what most of us have for our lungs. And we're up at 8,000 feet and it gets a little tough to breathe. So instead of taking these long heroic hikes and seeing everything, I'm taking 150-yard walks and stopping, sitting down, drinking water, getting up and taking another 150, 200 yards, sitting down. And the whole month, we're just doing things that are geared around her. Before we left for sabbatical, I'm thinking, this could be cool. You know, she doesn't mind driving. And I can actually work when we ride, so she can drive, and I'll be, you know, riding and reading and doing all kinds of things. I want you to know I drove the entire 3,500 miles, <laughs> every mile, no exception, while she knitted and sewed. <laughs> the whole thing was reversed. I get back, and you know what I realized? I realized, really, this trip was not about me. <laughs> it really wasn't at all. I was so selfish, the thought never occurred to me. A block-headed husband, it never occurred to me until I got back that the whole trip was about her. I remember one little place, we were look, I was always looking for books. You know? So I'm leaning down looking for books, and Allison's being kind, you know, we're there. And I hear, overhear two, an older couple arguing, and I just hear this part of the argument. She says to him, I don't want peanuts I don't want crackers. I want real food. <laughs> I'm going, thank you, Lord. I think that message was for me. Okay. So, you know, you got to, women, they notice food. They can tell the difference between the vegetables and everything and the difference between a hot dog and a steak. They notice all that. And I realize this is really about her, everything about it. And here is what Paul is saying. As dramatic as it is for you, to have your sins forgiven? To be transferred from one kingdom to another, from darkness to light, from this present evil age to this new age which is dawning, you become a citizen of it? As dramatic as it is for you to have the shackles of guilt broken and to be a free man, ultimately, it's really not about you. It is about Him. And here's the deepest secret of the gospel. The ultimate reason that God is being so kind to you is because it glorifies Him. And the reason He wants you to be so happy in it is that when you are a satisfied customer, He is honored and lifted up. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that your joy and delight in your salvation is consistent with His enjoying His greatest work. 
And so you honor and glorify Him by receiving the gift of His salvation. That's the most beautiful thing of all. So gentlemen, amen to that. Have a great day. Peace of God, the grace of the Lord be with you. Amen. All right, go out there and earn some money and tithe, please.
I just got one. 